Good morning, everybody. Uh, so, as per the usual arrangement, uh, whenever I preach, there's a lot more that I would like to say than I have time for. So, if you can do me a favor, open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. If you've got a smart device, use that. If you have your Bible with you, use that. If you don't, there's probably a Bible tucked in the chair in front of you. Grab that. Um, we tend to have it on the screen. I'm going to be reading so much this morning. If I try to have the tech guys follow me with how much I'm reading, they'll, they'll be like up there on the keyboard, like clacking on Morse code. Like, so we're just going to read together. Um, and real quick, though, if you've been with us for a while, or maybe if you're new, just as a recap, we've been doing Bible recap, which is going through the Bible chronologically in a year. So we're really hitting everything at breakneck speed, and particularly in the New Testament, because it's not done chronologically, but rather by the length of whoever wrote the letter, we're kind of hopping all over the place. So last week we were in James, now we're in Corinthians. And if you've been in a church for any length of time, you've probably heard any number of sermons from the Corinthians. It's, there's two of them. They're long. They're really, they're actually, as far as Paul's stuff, they're some of the harder things to interpret because we kind of have to really infer some of the things that they were having to deal with. Because it's a personal letter to a particular group of believers. So there's not necessarily a whole lot of historical documentation about that church in that region at that period of time. Nobody really cared about this new religion that was coming up from all these backwater folks from Judea. So we kind of have to just take the little bits that Paul gives us and address and kind of backfill what we think was probably going on. And he addresses like 101 different topics. And the chapters leading up to 12, I mean, he covers the gambit. He talks about like head coverings and worship. He talks about them uh, getting drunk during the Lord's Supper. There's one guy who has a really weird relationship going on. Um, we'll just leave it at that. And I mean, he's talked about warnings against idols. So it's, there's a lot going on in these two letters. And chapters 12, 13, and 14 are what we're going to be looking at this morning. Ooh, goodness, somebody's upset. And uh, me too, man. It's too cold this morning. Uh, and, and Paul is, goes immediately from talking about the Lord's Supper, and he gives a hard subject change. And he just goes into the next chapter saying this. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. And that's all he gives us to know there's a hard subject change. Uh, but to kind of get a good idea of who the Corinthians are, aside from all the random stuff Paul talks about, it's a very strange city. So for ancient Rome, this is a bustling metropolis. I mean, it, by today's standards, it's still fairly impressive for an ancient city. Uh, Corinth was a big town for them. And it was really, really important to Rome and their infrastructure. At any given point in the year, at the normal times of year, this place probably had about 80 to 100,000 people in it. So twice the population of this city all packed into Corinth. And then whenever they had these great athletic or musical competitions every so often, the city's population would double. So 
at certain times of year, Corinth would have twice the amount of people in it as Springfield, Missouri. So there was a lot of people packed into this one little area. And part of the reason why it's so important to Rome is because there's two major harbors in it that are really well-placed for military stuff, for regular trade routes, and for having a bustling economy. And the city also has one very particular quirk about them that it seems like all of history likes to recognize. So what's not unique about them is in 140 or so BC, Rome leveled the place. They completely demolished it. Because it was a good strategic site, so they attacked it, as one does whenever you conquer things. And they stayed that way for a hundred years. This once prominent place was just desolate. And so a hundred years later, when a guy, I don't know if you've heard of him, his name is Julius Caesar, decided I'm going to rebuild some stuff and name it after me. So he rebuilds the place that his nation once destroyed. And let's see, he gives it some big, long Latin name. Colonia Laus Julia, so naming it after himself, Corinthus. And so as soon as the place starts getting rebuilt, and as soon as it looks like it's good again to start being a good place for an economy, you start getting this eclectic bunch of people all swarming to it. So you've got like a bunch of freed slaves, a bunch of Jews who've been banished from all kinds of places around this time period because the zealots are doing a very good job of making Rome angry and getting themselves kicked out of everywhere. So a bunch of Jews are flooding into it, and even just a bunch of random Greeks who were displaced at one point, are coming back home because somebody they knew lived here 100 years ago, so they're going to go back and try to reclaim their ancestral home. And so now you've just got this really large mixture of people in a harbor town where there's a massive economy. And because they were leveled for 100 years and just laid waste, and it's full of people who have been stepped on by society or oppressed in some sense, uh, Rome... Had this really interesting feature around this time period, which some people said was like its early death nail, but that's arguable, was that they allowed people in lower stations of society to actually earn their way out. Israel had something like this going on in their laws. They really didn't practice it much according to historical data, which is one of the things that they get judged for later in the Old Testament. But Rome would let all kinds of folks, if you could buy your freedom from your former slave master, or if you were just from somewhere else and you could come here, you could learn how to speak Greek and acclimate to our society, and you can just pay your taxes and not cause trouble, you're going to do well here, and you can climb the social ladder. Sounds a, a teensy bit like a culture we're familiar with. So we kind of get that much, but because these are all stepped on people and because this is a stepped on city and they're all swarming to this place to try to reclaim something they once had, this place was ubiquitous in the ancient world for being obsessed with honor. They were constantly trying to find it for themselves. The city literally had a catchphrase. Apparently, cities have these all the time, and nobody ever knows them except for like the people who wrote town charters. But uh, Corinth had one, and it was literally chorus honorum. 
which means to run a race of honor. And Paul kind of plays with that in his letters to the Corinthians whenever he tells them to run the good race. So they get it. Uh, Cicero, this is a Roman politician, literally, literally said this kind of about this region. By nature, we yearn and hunger for honor. And once we have glimpsed, as it were, some small part of its radiance, there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and suffer in order to secure it. That's just who these people are. There are people obsessed with trying to reclaim an honor that was taken from them or that they never had in the first place. And this is the kind of crowd that Paul's writing to. And he says they have a ton of really good features. And we like to highlight their problems because that's what Paul writes about. But we forget the beginning and the end of the book whenever he tells them they have a ton of really great qualities too. And one of them is that he's talking about in... 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is they seem to have a very receptive response to spiritual gifts. So we're going to read this at chapter 12, starting at verse 1 again. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however it is you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to that same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All of these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as he wills. So Paul is laying out that the Holy Spirit is going to empower believers with different forms of giftings and abilities, as verse 7 says, for the common good. And he provides several of them here. But he also talks about this in other portions of his letters, in Romans and Ephesians, and there's some overlap with this verse, and then some of them are very distinct in those other lists. So they're not all covered here, uh, but there's some argument as to how many there are because some of them sound very similar to the others. But most Bible scholar folk tend to land roughly on 18 or so gifts that Paul specifically mentions. And some of these were on that list. So things like apostles, there's prophets, 
There's teachers, which he sometimes equates with pastors and other lists, but teachers, people who have wisdom, people who have knowledge, people who have mercy, people who have faith. He even mentions those who have the gift of evangelism, Uh, discernment. Those all sound fairly churchy, like you would expect them, right? But then he also lists a handful of other things that you might not expect. Some of them, like Oh, miraculous works. That's pretty big, but it just says the working of miracles. There's no other way to translate it, but miracles. Uh, Healings, the gift of healings, plural. Like I said, no other way to translate that. It just is what it is. That's a one-to-one translation. Uh, There's also serving, which is a spiritual gift. There's giving. So being generous is considered a spiritual gift. There's leadership. Here's one for the type A folks. Administration. If you're good at organizing stuff, that's a God-given ability. And then another one that some people don't expect is hospitality. Paul explicitly says being hospitable to folks is a gift of the Spirit. And these are some of the agreed-upon ones that are listed, but here's the other thing that scholars also seem to agree upon. There's no reason to think that this list is exhaustive, that these are the only gifts that God could anoint somebody with. Do you want a really good tangible example from the Bible? In the Old Testament, when they were building the tabernacle, God literally tells Moses and Aaron, go find these two dudes because the Holy Spirit is going to empower them to be special craftsmen to build the tabernacle. Paul did not mention arts and crafts anywhere in his letters. And yet here we go. The Spirit empowers it. Um... Maybe it's a little bit of job security, but Paul never mentioned singing. But there you go. Some people are clearly empowered to do that sort of thing. Arguably, with the way you can translate the word uh, prophet in the Old Testament for prophesy, it's sometimes meant to prophesy fervently in song. So I guess technically it could kind of be considered prophecy. Scott, you're a prophet. You're welcome. Uh, I mean, so... There's, there's no reason to think that this is exhaustive. And the main thing that Paul is trying to point out is that apparently in Corinth, they were trying to honor some gifts over the others because he mentioned some specifically by name and not others. And he's trying to get them to understand that no, 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 no. Each and every single one of these gifts has a place, has a time, has a purpose. And the Spirit empowers you according to the need. It says God will apportion these as he wills. And sometimes they're not even like natural things that you're good at because there are times where God gives you an extra dose of being good at something and then he can actually empower you to use that in a spirit-filled way to make it more effective for specifically the kingdom. Because I mean, there are people out there who are good at stuff and good at a lot of this stuff and they don't give a hoot about the Bible or Jesus or the spirit. That's a little bit of common grace that God just gives people to function well in the world. But you can take those natural abilities 
with the aid of the Spirit and use them for the kingdom. And sometimes you get a little bit of supernatural gifting at things you're just bad at. You are just not good at them. And yet the Spirit says, step out into them. For example, I have been in nursery for two weeks. (laughs) This is not my gifting. I'm awkward with children. But there you go. Uh, So, I mean, there's no reason to think that just because you don't think you fit into any of these boxes that the Spirit hasn't given you something to use for the kingdom. These are just lists that matter to these people, but these lists aren't exhaustive. And uh, before we move on to sort of be able to address the big looming glaring elephant in the room about spiritual gifts and a room full of people who are in a Southern Baptist church, uh, there are three in particular that I think because of some baggage that are associated with them, we should probably talk about. Those three gifts in particular would be the gifts of tongues, healings, and prophecy. And there's a lot of tension around those specific gifts because for better or worse in the Western church, there have been varying different movements of people who are super into the spiritual gifts. You might know them as the charismatics, if you will. And there are a handful of denominations associated with those movements, but it is what it is. And unfortunately, those three gifts seem to be the ones that are the most readily abused in the public eye. You have some folks that will like to fancy themselves apostle something or other with a capital A and say they have received a a word, not just a word, but the word from the Lord that is just as authoritative, if not more authoritative than the Bible because they're an apostle. So they can hear the word of the Lord. Or you have some that like to try to, to make money and showboat things out of, out of healings, things that got televised. Sometimes a thing happens, sometimes nothing happens, and it was just ripe for abuse. There are probably plenty of people who know people with frustrations about the gifting of tongues, because there are some denominations that genuinely believe you have to do it in order to be saved. So there's a tension here with the spiritual gifts, especially these three. And there are some, and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to like make artificial camps here. These are just useful titles, understanding that there's a whole spectrum of things in between. So please don't hear, I'm in this group or I'm in this group. I'm just trying to, if we were talking about this all morning, we would be here for days. I understand you might not be in camp A or camp B. There's a whole spectrum here. Okay. But there are even some that specifically because of these three gifts would say, no, just these three don't happen anymore. Just those three were for the apostles and the apostles only. And they do so because they respect and revere God's word and they want to protect it with everything in their heart. That is probably their motivation. And I want to protect and revere God's word with everything that we have. All at the same time, there are a number of problems with that. Because first of all, we have Jesus telling us blatantly in the Gospels that he will empower his believers to do the same kinds of things he did 
and even greater. Now, some people might sit there and try to argue, well, yes, he was talking to his disciples. Well, let's look again, because in John, while he's promising the Holy Spirit, he tells them, he tells his disciples, whoever believes in me will be empowered to do these things. In the Gospels, Jesus sends out his disciples from him on two different occasions. One, it's just them. He empowers them to do this stuff. Then the second time he sends them out, he sends each disciple out with a group of other followers. So he sends out 70 people in total. All of them come back reporting to have done exorcisms, miraculous healings. All 70 of them. In the day of Pentecost, it wasn't just the disciples who experienced the tongues of fire coming upon them and spoke languages they didn't know. There was 120 people there total in that day. All of them experienced this miraculous ability to speak languages they didn't know. We also have these three gifts. The big problem ones are the ones that are most attested to all throughout church history. All throughout church history. I mean, and these aren't just like some people kind of say it whispers and rumors. I mean, these are big deal names. Early church fathers like Polycarp, Irenaeus, Tertullian. I'm, for the non-history people, these, these names don't matter to you. But for some folks, this is a really big deal, right? And some people try to say, oh, well, that was before Scripture was canonized because they use a really poor interpretation of 1 Corinthians 13. There's a problem with that and that Augustine of Hippa, who is important not just for evangelicals, but for Catholics and everybody else. Everybody likes Augustine. Uh, he's reporting tongues, healings, and prophecies after the canon of Scripture was agreed upon at the Synod of Hippo. After. And there are literally countless stories that come back from the mission field all the time today of this stuff, where things, miraculous things happen. There was a missionary who came to Katie's Bible College who talked about a strange instance of two people communicating in a foreign country, and the next day when that person talked to those individuals, they were speaking a different language. And he was like, why are they speaking a different language? He or she, I can't remember if it was a guy or a girl. It was a girl? She was like, a teenage girl. Yeah. And she spoke to them, and they were talking back to her. Next day. They were speaking what? Spanish, probably? They were speaking Spanish. She was flustered. Why are you speaking in Spanish? You know I don't speak Spanish. We talked yesterday. A translator comes over and says, the girls are flustered with you because they said you were speaking Spanish yesterday. What is that? (laughs) There are stories of a guy, or funnily enough, a Baptist, who didn't believe in miraculous things like this anymore. And a guy on the mission field kept coming up to him who was blind. The man physically didn't have eyeballs in his head. He wasn't just born blind. He did not have eyeballs. Right? And the guy keeps pestering him. Please heal me. Please heal me. Please heal me. And finally, in exacerbation, he says, fine. Be healed. And the guy had eyeballs out of nowhere. Like stories like this happen. And unless we're willing to just sit here and say, nah to a whole lot of church history and to a whole lot of brothers and sisters in Christ, it seems 
like they're happening. And it does happen. And God uses it. And it's, and I understand there's a high potential for abuse, and maybe even some of the people in the room have been abused by traditions that use these three particular gifts to squash other people. I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. God empowers people to use these things and use them well. And I don't want us to feel fear in the things that the Spirit tries to do because some people twist and warp the things of God for their own reasons. So if we move on, Paul tries to say, hey, you don't get to honor some gifts over others because it says in chapter 12, starting at verse 12, for just as the body is one and has many members... And all of the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot were to say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would make it, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of hearing come from? If the whole body uh, were, were an ear, sorry, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing come from? If the whole body were an ear, where would one get their sense of smell? But as it is, God has arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chooses. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again, the head to the feet and say, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body with greater honor to the part that lacked it. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, we all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ, the individual uh, and individually members of it. God has appointed in the church first the apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then the gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and the various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues or do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts? The point is that particularly um, in the West, I mean, it's, it's everywhere because this was ancient Rome. But particularly here in the West, we like to have things in nice, tidy little boxes 
And if your particular skill or gifting does not fit neatly within the church box, then you think it can't really be used. I, like, I remember whenever I was going into college and trying to figure out what the calling to ministry looked like, and everybody hands you books, so you think you're called to the ministry kind of books, you know, and God bless the people who write those. Almost every single one of them were just like, so you're either going to be a preacher, a worship leader, or a missionary. Pick one. And I mean, okay, but something doesn't seem to necessarily fit tidily into that list. And I remember talking to a professor about it, who was twice my age, and he says, oh yeah, I got really frustrated with those books too when I was your age, because I felt very specifically like I needed to be an evangelist, and nobody wrote books on it. Because everybody thought you were a preacher, worship leader, or a missionary. God has given you something. Anything that you can use to benefit the kingdom. And it doesn't always look churchy. Sometimes it's helping. Because Paul puts that service in a list on equal footing with the apostles and the prophets. Saying the people who just help. The people who can't do anything but maybe give a little bit extra of themselves or of their money because Corinth was a wealthy place. They're like, I'm not good at anything, but I got money and I can just throw it at you to help the church. He says those people are just as important as the apostles and the prophets and the pastors. Right? He says the people who are hospitable. The Spirit uses that just as much as he uses all of these other gifts. If you feel like you don't have something because your something doesn't look like my something or David's something or Adam's something or Carrie's or Keith's or anybody else's something, I would like to inform you God thinks you're wrong. And the Spirit has given you something to use for the church. And Corinth, who is apparently super open to gifts, was unintentionally edging out some for the sake of others. And we all have a propensity of doing this. My wire mic does not want to cooperate this morning. My apologies. And we can unintentionally do that as a culture because when you come to church, there's the guy who sings, there's the guy who preaches, there's the person who holds the plates, there's the person who hands me the juice and the bread, and I just sit in the chair. That's my job. That's not your job. God wants to use you. And you might be surprised by the way he wants to. And Paul gives us this massive list of stuff here. And because some of it might not fit into our particular wheelhouse or because some of it might make us uncomfortable or because some of it has been at one point and on several points throughout American Christianity used and abused, we shouldn't edge it out. We want to be a place as, as a holistic body that helps people discover whatever it is that God might be equipping them to do. Then we want to encourage them to keep pouring into that gifting. And then as soon as we know you're ready, we deploy these people. And it might be something they're naturally good at, or it might be a spontaneous moment where God just gives you something that you don't naturally have with you all the time. Christ tells, tells Nicodemus, the spirit moves as he will. And you know him when he's upon you.
So even the spirit might not fit in your tidy little box of things you happen to be good at. And maybe if it's something that you are good at, then God gives you an extra little something just in the moment because it's needed. I knew a guy, he was a preacher at a bunch of youth functions. And he was not like just a super charismatic person, but he said the moment that really kind of shifted things for him was while he was preaching to a room full of students and he was just, you know, doing his normal response to the message. He had this feeling all day, like he needed to say something specific, but he says, no, that's too weird. I can't, I can't. God, I can't. That's weird. So he said, finally in the response, he could not help but say this. He said, if you, he said, there's somebody in the room. He said, this is strange. I know. Bear with me. There's somebody here who has this very particular problem. I don't know who you are. I don't know if you're a guy or a girl, but there's, I feel God telling me you're here and you have this problem. And if you, if you're here, I need you to know that Jesus loves you. And he said, one kid literally stood up and came running to him down the aisle, bursting into tears and said, it's me. He doesn't normally just go around like he's not in McDonald's, you know, walking up to somebody. God told me that you're going to. No, he doesn't do that. He just knew in the moment the spirit was giving him a word for that moment for this particular group of people he was talking to. So gifts can even spur up just in the moment when the spirit leads. And we need to be open and available to all of them. But here's the one that it seems like Corinth was trying to push over the others. If you want to skip ahead a little bit into chapter 14, verse 2. And Paul says, for the one who speaks in a tongue. So they were elevating the gift of tongues over the other gifts. Probably because the apostles and the initial 120 people who followed Jesus most closely spoke it. So it seemed like kind of a status thing if we all had the same gift as the apostles. That's probably what was going on here. He says, For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. For no one understands him. But he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues. Unless someone interprets so that the whole church may be lifted up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring to you some kind of revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching about what I've said? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what they're playing? And if a bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will know that it's time to rush into battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many kinds of languages in the world, and each one of them has their own meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel 
in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he might interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues even more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words in my mind in order to instruct another than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants to evil, but in your thinking be mature. And the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners, I will speak to the people And even then, they will not listen, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, they will not say, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy, an unbeliever or an outsider enters, He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So they were elevating the gift of tongues. And it was a good gift. It's a useful gift. Thousands of people, thousands and thousands of people were saved by a demonstration of that gift all throughout Acts. And yet here, Paul is telling them, stop elevating it over everything else because the other gifts that you think are less honorable actually have more honor than you. And I, who speak in tongues all the time as an apostle, and probably even more than you do, would wish that you would just stop talking in tongues for five seconds so you could say something that the people understand. He says that you would prophesy. And prophecy, being one of those uncomfortable gifts, let me, let me kind of, we're going to put some parameters here on this so that we can all agree upon it. Okay. Prophecy, because we've talked about prophets before here at Memorial, and especially in the Old Testament, whenever God spoke through Moses saying, hey, that all of God's people would be prophets. That's the goal. Okay. Prophets are people who carry the word of the Lord. And we're going to put very careful parameters on this, that God, in individual moments of the Spirit trying to reach another, might give you a word. But hear this very, very carefully. God will not privately, solely, distinctly to you give the word. Because the word was made available to all through the person of Jesus. So all of his people can see the word and say amen. You or nobody else, I don't care if they call themselves apostle with a capital A, nobody privately gets the word. 
We all have the word. But the Spirit might use you to reach another in a moment. But he's saying that I wish that all people would prophesy so that all people carry the word. Because all of God's people know the word because you know Jesus. So we're going to put helpful parameters on this because some of you all are like, okay, I'm good at administrating, but you tuned out whenever I was talking about like healing and tongues and prophecy and this and that. Well, guess what? You're prophets. You don't get to tune this part out. All of God's people have two things. All of us have two things that we were given by the Spirit. All right, And there's some language surrounding this of being like, baptized by the Spirit, being filled with the Spirit, and this and that, yada, yada. Because there's still baggage associated with all that language, we're going to make our own language for it this morning. So all of us have two things. One, every single one of you, all of you are priests. Because the Spirit sealed you. And you can now step into the presence of a holy God. Because Christ was a great high priest who stepped into the presence of God, and did away with sin and death, now all people are priests that can step into God's presence, not just the one high priest once a year. You are all priests. And the priest's function now leads to the other thing that you've been given, which is you are all prophets. Everybody. Because if we look at the Old Testament, the prophets were people who were miraculously in God's throne room. And then because they had the experience of going into the throne room, God anointed them for service to speak his word. And because you have gone with Christ into the throne room as a priest, you are now also a prophet who has been cleansed to go out and speak his word. All of us, even if you don't think you have any other gifts, you are both a priest and a prophet. You have at least those Use them. I don't care if you speak in tongues. I don't care if you can pray over people and they've been healed. I don't care if you got nothing else. You, at the very least, should be a priest and prophet. And that will suffice for our language of baptism or filling of the Spirit because it's essentially the same thing. That is what you as an individual get to take with you and know about the spiritual gifts. If I don't know anything else about myself, then I know I am both a priest and prophet, and God wants me to do this with them. Speak his word, and help the church minister. But here's the thing. It's really, really easy to get stuck in our own heads. And it's really, really easy that once we realize that the Spirit empowers us, that to just get in our own heads and get very kind of hoity-toity about it, just like the Corinthians did. Because it's exciting whenever the Spirit does something inexplicable in and around you, and you can get swept up and forget what it's all really about, just like the Corinthians did. They apparently did awesome works. There was apparently tongues and prophecy and healing, but they kind of lost the grain because here's, we're going to go right in the middle because Paul talks about gifts. Then he talks about their usage of tongues, but right in the middle of it, he gives a big long monologue that most of you all probably, because you know it as the love chapter, tend to read it totally divorced from all of the spiritual gifts talk. Not because you're sinful or anything, but that's just because of the way we read books here in America. We just read individual chapters and separate it out from everything else. But he tells them 
this at the end of 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. And maybe this will make chapter 13 mean more to you since he's talking to them about their use of spiritual gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm nothing but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all of the faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, then I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist upon its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. And even knowledge will pass away. For we know in part, so we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have come to be known fully. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three things. But the greatest of them is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy. It's easy to get swept up in the moment to get excited when you start seeing the spirit move and you, and it's like other people aren't seeing it. They don't get it maybe because they've just never been introduced to it. Like Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed about the gifts. Maybe they're scared because some of the gifts have been used to hurt or abuse them or other people that they love and they don't know rightly what to do with it. And so you see the spirit doing powerful things and you just get so antsy. You're like, just Spirit does good stuff. Just let it happen. And to other people, they're just confused. And they're like, I don't know, man. There's some weird voodoo like Jesus superpowers going on over there. And I don't know if I can trust it. And the whole point is, is that these gifts were made for one purpose and one purpose only. And that is to love other people. They're not meant to build up you or yourself or your self-esteem or your personal faith. A miracle isn't meant for you to sit there quietly in your room in a moment of desperation and say, God, please do something so I know you're still there. That's probably not going to bring on a miracle. Miracles were meant to minister to other people. Jesus did a ton of them. He never did them for himself. And every single time he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, it was to do a miracle for himself. But he didn't do it. And every time he did something miraculous for somebody else to show them the Father, and people tried to anoint him as a warrior king, the gospel said he would just slip away. And he would go be by himself, 
with his father. And when the apostles did miraculous things, it was always in service of other people. The gifts, as Paul even says later in chapter 14 and parts of 15, are not meant for fear and confusion because God is the God of order. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Engage with the spiritual gifts, even the ones you don't fully understand. And you'll be able to tell the good ones from the bad ones based upon if they're done in love. If they're done with a blowhorn making one person look really impressive, we have some warning signs here. I'm not saying it's impossible, but we got some red flags already. But the gifts were done quietly and in love. We could do all the most amazing things in the world that people wouldn't be able to explain. And it seems like they would have to be forced to admit that Jesus is Lord. And yet if we don't do it in love, it means nothing. And it will do nothing. Christ even warned us that whenever his time comes... He'll talk to people and people will say, but we did miracles in your name. And he'll say, you didn't. And I never knew you. Because their gifts weren't done in love. Love does not create fear or confusion or abuse. It creates a fruitful place for the kingdom. And the spiritual gifts are part of that. And God is empowering you with them. And if you don't know where to start, just remember, you are at the very least already a priest and a prophet. Start there. That's where you can do individually your work right now. And then we as the body can come around you to help hold you accountable to the standard of love so that you can then discover and engage those gifts. And then we can deploy you to be a more effective prophet because the Spirit is clearly gifting you to do miraculous things. So this morning, in our time of response, we just get alone for just a moment with God. And maybe you're somebody who this makes you very skittish and very uncomfortable because you don't know what to do with it. You don't know what to do with with healings and tongues and prophecy and this and that. That's okay. Just let go for a moment and say, God, if nothing else, use me as your prophet and make yourself open and see where he takes you from there. And then, as a body, we can come together and help build one another up. So just pray this morning, God, how do you want me to serve? How are you gifting me? And invite the Spirit to reveal to you what he's shaping you to be. And if you're nervous or if you're antsy, that's fine. We'll come alongside you in love 
so that you can use your gifts for the kingdom. Because where there's love, there's no fear, no abuse, no anxiety, just Christ. Amen. So we're going to step forward as a body out in faith and see what that looks like for us to help discover and engage in spiritual gifts. So I'm going to pray over you all this morning as we respond. Father God, I thank you for this morning. Uh, I thank you that you, as a holy and good God, would equip and empower broken vessels to do awesome things in the name of your Son. And I pray that this could be a place where people could discover those gifts in security and love and peace and then use them in those same ways in the name of your Son. Because Jesus said that you will know that the Spirit is upon you because he brings me glory. So help us bring you glory. Ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.